0: Knock knock. Who's there? KRCL. KRCL who? You don't know about KRCL? It's only the greatest community radio station out there. No commercials, diverse music, and it's supported by listeners like us. Cool! I'm going to krcl.org right now to make my year-end tax-deductible donation. From everyone here at KRCL, we are truly grateful for 40-plus years of community support. Thanks.
1: This is Radioactive, KRCL's show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up tonight, community co-host Nick Burns will talk with Deanne Birch, author of Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. He's also got news of Utah's first nursery for desert bighorn sheep. He'll talk with Riley Peck, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources once in a lifetime species coordinator. And later this hour, as promised yesterday, and we have time tonight, radioactive's preview of the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. We got team coverage planned for you and wanted to give you a preview as tickets go on sale Friday. If you're looking for something to get you in the holiday spirit, we have you covered online at krcl.org with a growing list of food, clothing, and gift drives that you can help out with. For instance, the Salt Lake County Giving Tree. Salt Lake County Aging and Adult Services is partnering with the community to bring a little holiday cheer to homebound older adults. You can stop by the Salt Lake County Government Center's South Building Atrium at 2001 South State Street and pick a name off the tree, shop for these gifts, and then return them there. Caseworkers deliver them to homebound seniors, the majority of whom would not receive a holiday gift without generosity from folks just like you. Over on our rallies and Resources page, you'll find Downtuned for Kids Heavy Metal Charity Show happening on Saturday, 7 to 11 p.m. at the Loading Dock. You can pay admission or donate a new toy for entry. Proceeds go to Toys for Tots. Monday, the Chapman branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library will be hosting Las Posadas, a religious observance from Mexico. They'll have joyful singing, dance performances, refreshments, lantern making, and a piñata. You can also pick up Las Posadas take-home kits at Chapman through December 23rd, or until supplies run out. And Tuesday, December 21st on the solstice and the longest night of the year, the Road Home and 4th Street Clinic will be holding the Homeless Persons Memorial Candlelight Vigil, 5.30 p.m. at Pioneer Park. It remembers and honors homeless persons who have died in Salt Lake City in 2021 and to prevent additional loss of life or suffering caused by homelessness through advocacy, education, and other initiatives. For more details, visit the rallies and Resources page of krcl.org. As I said earlier, Utah is getting its first nursery for desert bighorn sheep in Utah. Down on 1,800 acres of private property, it's called the Skyrider Wilderness Ranch. To find out more, let's pass the microphone to community co-host Nick Burns.
2: So joining us now on Radioactive, Riley Peck. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? I am fine. And I'm totally intrigued by this notion of a nursery for desert bighorn sheep. I just want to go visit all the baby sheep. I know they're wild animals, but Hey, baby goats and everything just excite me. But let's start with this. What's a desert bighorn sheep as opposed to some other kind of bighorn sheep. So, yeah, I mean, we have, it is just another subspecies
3: of bighorn sheep. Uh, okay. I think many people are familiar with, uh, different subspecies we have like with deer we have mule deer and white tail and black tail deer and and a lot more closely related are the uh sheep the rocky mountain bighorn and the desert bighorn just different subspecies
2: and if you i mean if if i saw one on the street it would look basically like a rocky mountain or something right it's not like it's going to look wildly different
3: uh, not wildly different, slightly different, uh, mildly different. It, certainly, with a trained eye, you'd you'd likely be able to tell some subtle differences. Uh, specifically, their habitat and where they where they hang out would be largely different.
2: Well, obviously, desert bighorn sheep. So I'm intrigued. We have this new nursery. It's a partnership with the MLM business, Young Living, and I want to talk about that in this 1,800 acre ranch. But these desert bighorn that the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources is going to partner with Young Living at this nursery, they're coming from Nevada. We don't have these sheep here in Utah anymore. Our partnership with Young Living is an, an interesting one. We've been trying for multiple years
3: to try and find a location that would be suitable for these desert bighorn sheep. Typically, our, our normal partnerships are on public land. So other state lands, federal BLM or Forest Service. and, and uh bighorn sheep in the state of Utah are facing different challenges so, you know largely due to the impact that disease has with our sheep and so we needed a location that met all of their uh, physical requirements their to be able to find food water uh, escape cover uh, natural habitat requirements as well as in an area where they are uh, maybe secure from the most you know at risk disease issues that we have and we looked across the entire state we did not find much of a low as far as a location with our traditional partners we then went back to the drawing board and said we might need to go to a a less traditional partner and and find some private land and one of our biologists in the northeastern region had a very good relationship with the Uh, the ranch manager there and from there that idea spun and we just investigated and took more site tours and did a habitat evaluation different models and uh the partnership was born and they have been fantastic to work with we're excited about that and and you asked the question again uh do we not have desert bighorn sheep in the state we we do we have we have uh 13 different uh populations of them. The challenge is is we don't have a population where they are clean or without some sort of uh, disease, most commonly pneumonia. And so that is one of the main reasons we need a nursery facility where they're clean of disease. And so in case one of these populations reduced to the number that they become extirpated in that area, we want to be able to have a clean, healthy robust population uh, in the state of Utah that we can transplant those and restart that. And so currently we don't have that. And we, we are re- relying on the generosity of surrounding states and, and to populate this nursery area, this nursery herd, we are most likely going to rely on Nevada who has been a fantastic partner in the past and that is, is very wonderful to work with.
2: I mean, it's easy to have like a mental image of these sheep like gambling in Reno, but but that's a different show. <laughs> um, we have 1,800 acres. It sounds like this ranch already existed. You just had to find out and determine that it was the right spot. No hunting, so we're gonna be safe from guns for these little baby creatures. Um, what's What's the nursery period? Do they live here for, are you expecting six months, six years? how long does it take to you know for one to grow up and then kind of move out on its own so yeah i mean that is when we're talking about an individual that's <clears throat> going to be a hard
3: question to answer because uh they will for all intents and purposes operate in, like wild sheep completely and we will wait until the population is large enough to move to move sheep off and then when we move sheep out they will be across all a age range. The dy- age dynamic will be highly variable from adult to sub-adult to, to some lambs, and we will just take a subsection of that population and move that. Um, and so to ask that on an individual basis, it may be multiple years for one and, and months for another, but the goal is to be utilized, to have a productive enough herd that every couple of years we're able to move a significant number out to populations that need help.
2: That makes sense. And that was going to be my next question, that this is a group of these uh, desert bighorn sheep will live on this 1800 acres. You're not keeping them in a barn and bottle feeding babies and whatnot. This is to just establish a safe place for this group to live and prosper. Okay. It is a
3: secure area. Yeah. And part of the Problems that we've had is we found habitat and we found area that has worked in the past to keep these sheep healthy and wild, but then we have surrounding areas where they may come in contact with disease or they may wander in. And one of the benefits to this location is it's almost entirely surrounded by a Division of Wildlife Land, where we know what wild animals they'd run into, and certainly know that they will not be running into domestic animals. And so Yes, if, if you were to view these sheep, you would have no idea that they were anything other than a completely perfectly wild population. They are not going to be in a barn. They are not going to be handled. They are not going to be uh, treated like a domestic population. They will very much be wild, and that is essential to the fact that we're going to be moving them into a wild landscape, and they need to, to operate as such from the moment, moment they were born. Are
2: these, are these sheep trophy animals? Are there hunting permits? Are they, are they going to get shot? I mean, not at the nursery of course, but is that something that's a, a goal here for hunters? Uh, I would say that there would be definitely
3: areas where they could be placed and uh, could be harvested with a hunter. There are some locations that they would not be. Uh, it is not outside of the realm of possibility that some of them would go to uh into or near parks that does not have hunting, there would be some population that they are, would be hunting you know and and <clears throat> I, I would say in this situation, this is an, an, a very important need for us in the state and the management of bighorn sheep and and because of this, those that have hunted in partnerships like Utah Wild Sheep Foundation and Sportsmen for Fish and Wildlife have really helped out financially in, in making something like this possible. and so, it, it's a unique relationship where, yeah, there are times where these will be released to to locations where they will be hunted, and, and it is because of hunters that a lot of this is being financed.
2: Riley Peck, thank you very much, and best wishes with all these desert bighorn sheep and this nursery. Pretty cool. Um, when you're ready to move some, maybe come back and we'll talk about that. We would be more than happy to. We are hoping that'll take place at the end of June. Thanks, Riley. Thank you very much. Joining us now on Radioactive, Deanne Birch, and she has a new book out: "Journey Through Fire and Ice: Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle." So, Deanne Birch, welcome to Radioactive. Thank you. So, Deanne, let's start with a short reading from the book, if you would, please.
4: Okay. Uh, this is the actually, it's called Sunrise. Last night I dreamed I was back in Kivalina, Alaska with my husband, Tiger. We were young in our 20s with a bright future ahead of us. It was late spring when the sun never set and people wandered from house to house at all times of the day and night. The country was awake with tiny wildflowers so the temperature rarely rose above 45 degrees Fahrenheit. The sea ice was the color of aquamarines and sparkled in the sunlight. Sometimes the sky turned white as the fog rolled in obscuring everything for miles around. The scene quickly morphed into a winter painted in muted pastels, dove gray hills in the distance, snow reflecting pinks and mauves when the sun was low. Perpetual glow toured the horizon for a few days in late fall, but by early December, there was no light at all. The colors of Kivalina were an echo of my life there. The grays mirrored my loneliness and isolation. The soft whispers of pinks and mauves offered me fragments of hope. Should I keep on? Shaking, I struggled to light the kerosene lantern, our only form of light. What if it ignited in my face? I was worried. I gave this job to Tiger when he was home, but he wasn't around. The room was cold as the wind howled through the cracks and crevices of our wooden house. I didn't want to be there for another winter. Despite being wrapped in blankets, when I awoke, my teeth were chattering and my feet felt like ice. I reached over to touch my husband and instead was was met with an empty place and a sense of overwhelming loss. He wasn't there.
2: The author, Deanne Birch, reading from her new book, Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. Deanne Birch, let's talk about your book. Why now? I mean, this book really covers your life you and your husband in the early 1960s. And I have a lot of questions about those days and whatnot, because that's basically my generation too. But to jump in here, Journey Through Fire and Ice, why write and publish this book now and not say 20 years ago or maybe even 50 years ago?
4: Uh, that's a very, well, first of all, I had a family after, you know, after we lived in, in Catalina. And I, and I had a budding or a very busy photographic career, So I really didn't have time to do a memoir, but frankly, my husband didn't want me to write one. Oh, he, he had no idea what I was going to write about. And I didn't either, except I sort of had an idea, but you know, you have these ideas in your mind and, and after he died, it came to fruition. I just decided I was going to go ahead and I was going to do it.
2: Okay. Okay. And I, and I want to ask about that and talk about your husband a little bit too, but but your book is set in mostly in the early 1960s, a little bit is sort of revisiting a few years later, late 1950s, early 1960s, North America, you got married, you moved north, and I want to say way north of the Arctic Circle, but this was not at all your idea. So tell me about this notion of you just get married and you follow your husband to Kivalina Alaska, and what your first impressions were. I mean, what a change.
4: (laughs) Well, well, we did live in Chicago for nine months before we moved to Kivalina. We lived in student housing in Chicago. I didn't talk about that part at all. But, um, you know, in the early 60s, when you got married and you were in love with the person, you didn't really ask questions. You just, okay. if you want to move up to the Arctic Circle, I'll go with you and of course i had no idea what i was getting myself into
2: yeah I had
4: absolutely no idea he really i don't think he prepared me very well uh, i mean that's probably a mean thing to say but i had i just couldn't believe what i was getting myself into
2: well and and you do you you do talk about that in the book this notion of it was his decision and so on but i as, as you are saying, that must have been just massive culture shock. You're suddenly in a village. I mean, this is the 1960s, your small wooden house, no electricity, no plumbing, really. I mean, well, you must have really been in love.
4: <laughs> I think I was. Oh, you
2: know? <laughs> no, I think in the book, it's clear you were. I think you make that clear.
4: But yes, it was massive culture shock. Uh, my husband had been there before. He had loved the village when he was there before and decided that he was going to go back. And um, I guess when I said I'd marry him, I guess I knew I was going to go back. I was going to go up.
2: Yeah, your husband and I and I want to ask about him here in a bit. But, you know, he was doing participant research for his Ph.D. He had been there before. Um, but I'm intrigued by the title here, Journey Through Fire and Ice: Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. Your husband suffered a life altering accident and you know, we'll talk about that. But I wonder, this adventure, in some ways, did it also shatter your dreams or maybe
4: not? Uh, well, yes, it did. Well, first of all, because you know, after he got burned, he wasn't in a way the same man I had married. Uh. Um, at least in as far as he as far as looks were concerned. Um, but we had planned, he had our whole life planned out. You know, okay. We were gonna spend two years in Alaska. We were gonna go to a place after the first village, we were gonna go to a place called Shungnak, which I wish I could have gone to because it I guess they had a summer there like a real summer 85 degrees. Wow. But in the winter it was probably like 55 below, so maybe I wouldn't have wanted to go there, but it was spo- supposed to be a wonderful village. Um but we had our whole life planned, you know. He was going to we were going to spend two years up there and then we were going to move to Madison, Wisconsin while he was writing his PhD, and that never happened, of course. He ended up in Harrisburg writing his PhD in Harrisburg um, as he got you know as as he had operations during that time so I don't know I think his dreams were really shattered but I think mine were too in a way I really hadn't thought about the title until you asked me oh
2: so I have to say reading your book one of the things I like the most is you just let the story do the talking. You just sort of relate in almost a journalistic fashion. I did this, I did this, this happened. We had sled dogs, you know, and so on. Um, And as we were just saying, a fairly conventional marriage, early 1960, traditional roles for husband and wife, or I guess I would say man and wife as marriage ceremonies used to often say. Um, (laughs) But you do write often this notion about his choice, his decision and that you kept quiet about your hesitancies or your misgivings. Um, and I wonder, did, did your thoughts about those misgivings change as you wrote the book? Did, did it give
4: you like a different perspective on your early marriage, I wonder? I think after I finished it okay, and after it got published, I think I realized that I had had an experience that no other woman that I know of <laughs> has had. And I suddenly realized that, in a way, it was a wonderful experience. Despite what happened, it was it was a remarkable experience, and um, I'm really glad. I have to say, I'm really glad that I had it.
2: Yeah, I mean, amazing. I mean, how how few people ever could have that sort of culture shock, um,
4: yeah,
2: and you did both depth- survive. I mean, your husband was terribly burned, a lot of surgeries, a lot of problems health wise and whatnot, but. You know, here you are, you, you're up in Kivalina, the next thing you know, you're peeling blubber off a seal with a curved ulu blade. Um, <laughs> did you ever come to feel confident in that setting, doing those, I want to say, housewife chores that the local
4: women were doing? Did you ever feel like you could do it? Not without help. Uh. No, I never <laughs> felt, I, I shouldn't say I never felt confident. Um, yeah. I never was confident about that part of my, about that part of living in Kivalina. But I did feel, um, I did feel as though I could do it if I absolutely had to, to survive. But I didn't like doing it. And I know I wouldn't like doing it now. Um, I didn't mind drying and cleaning the fish that much. I didn't like it particularly. But when we went back, I made a parka. And I felt like by doing that, I, I did something that no, that none of my friends would have done. And that was, that was, and I was glad that I did it. If we'd been up longer, I would have tried to have made a pair of muck too. But we, had, we weren't up there longer. And I was sorry that when we first went up, I didn't think of doing that kind of thing. And of course, my husband probably didn't either, but he should have. <laughs>
2: Well, there, there, there are stretches of time when your husband is off, you know, doing his research. He's off on a seal hunt with the village men and whatnot, and you're sort of left on your own. Um, and one thing that really struck me about your writing was how intense the writing became and the tone of the book totally changed when you started to describe those occasions when alcohol showed up in the village. It's almost like a wraith or a demon Showing up, and of course domestic violence, fights, stabbings. But I was really struck by how intense your writing became, and what that must have been like in in terms of fear in the village among many people when alcohol showed up.
4: Well, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, my husband had warned me when we saw some uh. people in Fairbanks just lying around in a drunken haze, and he said, "I, you know." you're probably going to see this in Kivalina. And and of course, I certainly was not, I was praying I wouldn't be by myself if it did show up. And it was, it was for me, it was very frightening. Although I don't really think any, I don't know whether anybody would have come to our house. Probably one of the men would have come because he knew that, um, his wife might have come, and then that would have been a real problem. But he didn't come because he was drinking with the rest of the village. She was terrified of him, and she ran off to—I don't know where she went. I, I said, "Where are you going?" And and she said, "I'm going to someplace safe." And I kind of wish she'd taken me with her. <laughs> but then I, of course, ran over to the schoolhouse where I knew I would be safe. Yeah. And um, it felt like a mile. It was probably. Probably 150 to 200 yards away, but you know at that time it felt it felt like it was a mi- miles away.
2: But blissfully that seemed to have only occurred very rarely during your time there that someone would bring in alcohol. Um, there'd be heavy drinking and drunkenness. It seemed like that wasn't particularly the usual. It seemed an exception for the village.
4: Well, I think we were, I think we were very lucky because as you said, it was like a demon coming into the village.
2: Well, I'm glad you were safe, but your writing really, it really comes across in the book, in your tone and style, that like the fear. I, I do notice another part of the book that that really struck me was was were moments when I felt like you really were part of the village, and that would be the time when the planes would arrive, which was what, twice a week. Or the or the once every six month delivery ship, everybody would run to the airport or run down to where the ship was coming, and it seems to me those were conscious times when you were very much a part of the village, and I thought that was really kind of sweet. You're writing about that about those events.
4: Well, I think you know when the cargo ship arrived. Yeah, that that I was part of the events. I think I think when um, with the belugas were hauled up on the on the beach. And the whole village ran down, including me. And I think that's when I felt I really felt like part like part of the village. And I just felt that um, it was just, it was just, it was very interesting being there because I knew that I was observing a situation that or something that happened had been happening for thousands of years. And there I was immersed in the village life, watching, watching this all unfold it was really quite an experience.
2: Yeah. Well, and again, it's, that's largely I think why your husband wanted to do that sort of participant research.
4: Um, And I want to
2: ask about him, you know, we've mentioned this horrible fire. Um, His nickname Tiger, Tiger Birch, at first reading your book, I thought Tiger was his nickname, because he went to Princeton. But no, it seems he'd always been Tiger. And in the Arctic North, as you were saying, you're living alone. He's out doing his research. He's on seal hunts and so on. And then there's this tragedy and almost his death. And I wonder, were you surprised for Tiger that he runs back into the burning house?
4: You know, no, because it it was his, his quote, life work. On the other hand, I, uh, and I've maintained it in the book. I think he was burned initially. I think he was probably in shock when we got outside and he says he wasn't burned initially but i know he was because when he ran back inside and had to run through quote the wall of fire that he talked about he had his hands over his face and it was his hands that were so badly burned his face was badly burned too but i know that happened initially because his ears his ears sloughed off um so they were burned he had his hands over his face to his ears and then the ears were, sl- the ears slugged off.
2: I mean, you have to admit the man was incredibly powerful and strong to survive that at all. Um, With all the surgeries, you, you had to, of course, fly out of there, fly to another hospital, eventually end up back in the States, uh, near death, lung issues, all the smoke. I mean, the guy must have been a heck of stout to survive that. Um,
4: well, he, he was a pretty strong yeah. person. And the doctors, because of his lung issues, it really wasn't because of the burns, but because of his lung issues, I think he was very lucky to have survived that because we were without medical help for 17 hours. And that was, that was probably, that was one of the, worst, the most scary things that ever happened to, well, it was the most scary thing that ever happened to me up there.
2: He did go on to have a career. He did have a teaching career. It seems he retired a bit early, and and then had a longer career, essentially as a, as a, as a volunteer um, researcher or writer for the Smithsonian.
4: That is correct. And he got grants. Um, he applied for a lot of grants to go to Alaska so that he could continue his work up in Alaska, and he met a lot of a lot of very interesting people through the Smithsonian. So he got to go to the circumpolar conferences, which included going to Russia. So, you know, he he had a career that he really, really enjoyed. It was a wonderful career for him.
2: And I guess, You know, it's your book. And like you say, you wrote it after he died. And that sounds fairly sad in and of itself, but he certainly survived the fires and survived having the, you know, like you said, his ears burned off and on and on and on. I was intrigued about you returning as a mother. You know, you had your daughter down in the lower 48, but yet you were very familiar with how births happened in Kivalina and also child rearing. And I wonder how that struck you after your own child was born, thinking back on what you witnessed up there?
4: Well, I didn't really witness any births up there, but I certainly witnessed, I went into one house and the woman had just had her baby and the baby was lying beside her. And I thought, how wonderful, because I knew that when I went home and and if I got pregnant, which I luckily, fortunately did, I knew that that wasn't going to happen to me that I would go to the hospital and I'd be in the hospital for probably a week because that's what it was like in those days. And, you know, we really wouldn't have the chance to bond with our ch- child the way the women bonded up there. So I felt they had a really wonderful, wonderful childbirth experience. I think, you know, that every child up there had three mothers, you know, they can you know, there was such a big household that they would have three mothers. And even still, you know, when I hear from some of the natives, I hear that, you know, oh my mother, and then then they'll say something else. And so, well, oh, I thought your mother was so and so. Well, yes, but I also call my call her my mother. And so these these the children growing up seem to have a lot. Well, they had love all over the place. Whereas whereas we in the United States are often separated from our mothers. So the children don't see much of their grandparents, which is, which is really, you know, a shame.
2: And certainly, like you say, the birth and having the baby right there. I mean, I, I don't know about your experience in the early 1960s, but in the 1950s and 40s, it was not uncommon for the doctor to just knock the mom out and pull the baby out. And maybe they see each other the next day. So Extremely different, but you took your baby then back up to Kivalina when you went back. What two years later? A year later?
4: No, no, we went. Back. No, we went back. We went back by ourselves um, because I okay. wasn't pregnant. Yeah, I got pregnant at the end. Of, at the end of that period, um, in well, it would have been in August, I guess. And um, we came home, and Tiger went through a lot of surgeries, and I had, and then we moved to Winnipeg, and I had another child. And we went up in 1969 with my with our two little two little girls, and Tiger had promised me running water, <laughs> and electricity, and a telephone. However, we only had um, we only had electricity. Uh, we didn't have anything else. So- <laughs> uh,
2: that- well. So it's, it's hard to separate you, Deanne, and your story as a white woman in this remote Alaskan village, again, circa early, you know, 1964, and separate that from the village itself. And I certainly want to ask about your photography career. And I loved all the pictures in the book of your friends. But I wonder, have, has anyone in the village read your book? Are you still in
4: touch with anyone in Kivalina? Oh, I'm in touch with quite a few of them. Okay. I'm not sure how... Well, I know one of them was incensed oh. about my book, and um, she, her, her sister was so upset at what she put on on Facebook that um, she wrote a letter apologizing to me to me on Facebook, where her, and her sister totally unfriended her, huh. and she unfriended me, and uh, this particular woman had said, you know, go ahead, we loved your book, write another memoir, oh. but i think that i think you know some of the people were not happy with it but i i i think they i think well i know a lot of them did like it so i can't really i can't really speak for yeah
2: well it's your story it's very much your story and that's what i liked about it um you know it's it's uh it's 60 years later and and you had this long career in photography The pictures in the book are fantastic. I loved when I turned the page and there's a picture of the puppies. I'd like oh puppies, but especially the pictures of the women who were your friends. And I was very struck by that. And I wonder, it seems like your career in photography really started. And I think Tiger gave
4: you your first camera. Well, he did. He gave me my first camera when we went back up in in, um, uh, 1965. And I took a lot of the pictures. He had taken some of them and I had taken a lot of them. And they were all in color. I had them made into, I had them digitized. And then I would love to do a coffee table book oh. of those pictures because uh, they really, and they really are wonderful pictures in color. Um, I think I think it put the seeds of photography into my head, but I didn't really start my photography career until probably 1976, and I thought I was a great photographer. (laughs) I didn't know anything about anything. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet a couple of people and then joined the Professional Photographers of America. And um, the rest is history because I taught and I lectured and I even went to Sweden one time and and spoke. So that was very exciting.
2: No, I mean, the pictures you... I mean, there, there are they are certainly nice compositions in the book, but just your ability to capture, especially the women and the kids, um, at the moment of happiness, at the moment of joy, or the moment of concern. Um, I just thought the pictures were really nice, um, and I did notice, in spite of what we were talking about, that in the book, you know, you mentioned your misgivings and your hesitancies about this, that, or the other, but in the pictures that you are in. You're always smiling.
4: Uh, You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I wasn't really unhappy up there. I was unhappy. I missed my family terribly. I missed my friends because, you know, the women were very quiet. I used to begin to think that when they would come over to visit, it was just visiting was just a way of getting away from their own house. And they were quite happy just to sit there and, and not really say much. And uh, so I wasn't used to that. And so I missed my friends that I had. And I was very lonely up there. But apart from that, um, I guess you're right, I guess I was always smiling, you know, put on a brave face. And, and uh, you're right, I hadn't really thought about that. But I have to admit, I did love those dogs.
2: Oh, yeah. And and again, some positives and some negatives with the animals and the dogs in your life and whatnot. I also want to ask about the the actual descriptions of the landscape. And those really come across, as I want to say, true love for you, describing the days, the light, the different grays, the reflections off the ice. It's very poetic, and I was very struck with the juxtaposition between those paragraphs and, and parts of the book, and the more sort of journalistic, this is what I did, I scraped blubber, then I did this. And I was, I was very struck by the art um, in, the, in, in your ability to sort of capture the mood of the colors and the weather, um, so well done.
4: Well, I tried. I didn't. I, you know, The second person that said it's very journalistic, and I guess maybe it is. I, I didn't really think about it that way, because the journal I kept didn't ever reflect the way I felt about life up there. So
2: uh, we only have a few minutes left. And I want to ask one of the leaders today in Kivalina, he has the same last name as one of your friends back in the early 1960s, Swan? And I wondered, could he Austin Swan Senior? Could
4: he be one of the children that you knew back in the day? Oh, probably, absolutely. I mean, um, Austin Swan Senior, because
2: Austin I Swan think, Senior, he's one of the he's one of the assembly members in the village today.
4: Well, I think you're right. He would have been, huh. and then Millie Holly is another one that was a child when I was up there, and she's very involved and then i believe colleen swan was a child when i know she was was a child when i was up there and she's very involved as well
2: okay it's it just kind of it's such a it sort of goes around comes around and real quickly a couple minutes left climate change is going to force this town to move and there actually is there actually are plans currently to like move the whole town of kivalina what two or three miles away 12 12 miles away okay and
4: the school has already been built there are I did see some pictures of it that they posted on Facebook and it's already built. And I guess then the rest of the place will be built in the next couple of years because Kivalina is supposed to be underwater by 2025.
2: I mean, it's, it was basically on an Island when you were there, right? I mean, frozen, of course, and connected to the land in the winter.
4: Well, that's right. And, um, the last picture I saw, and I think it was, Around the first of December, the ocean wasn't frozen, but I know it is. I'm sure it is now because they've had you know minus 23 and minus 30 since since then. So I'm sure the ocean's frozen.
2: Uh, do you ever miss cleaning blubber
4: off of seal skin? <laughs> yeah, right. No, I no? do not. I do not miss that, and I do not miss. Uh, having no plumbing and not being able to take a shower. You know, those are all the things that that I certainly don't miss.
2: Well, Deanne Birch, thank you very much. Your book, Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed sort of revisiting the early 1960s. I mean, you write about the election of JFK and and his assassination and the Vietnam War and how that was all filtered through a very small village very far north of the Arctic Circle. So thank you, Deanne, for taking time joining us on Radioactive.
4: Oh, well, thank you for having me.
2: I enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you much.
1: Community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with Deanne Birch, author of Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Birch's book. I'm Laura Jones, and when we come back, that radioactive preview of the 2022 Sundance Film Festival.
0: Support for KRCL comes from Live Nation, presenting Jack Johnson, September 2nd, at USANA Amphitheater. Tickets and information at livenation.com. Yo, ho, ho, and greetings. This is Robert Nelson, and on December 18th from 4 to 7 p.m. on Smile Jamaica, I and I am going to play Reggae Santa Claus dropping great roots, Christmas tunes down your chimney, and I'm going to be assisted by my favorite elf, a.k.a. the general manager of KRCL, Tristan Tabish, and a year-end fundraiser for your station that rules the nation. Tune in, leave us a little year-end kindness, and find out if it's true that Santa Claus was an ancient astronaut. Smile Jamaica, December 18th. Four to seven PM, KRCL.org.
2: A spaceman came traveling on a ship from far. It was light years of time since his mission did stop.
1: This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at seven tonight, it's Democracy Now! followed by Emily's Mixtape at 8, Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30, and Liz Schulte gives you A rude Awakening, 3 a.m., followed by John Florence's Brand New Day at 6. Check out our entire programming lineup online at krcl.org. The 2022 Sundance Film Festival is coming up January 20th through the 30th. Tickets go on sale to the general public on Friday, so I assembled the radioactive film team for a preview. Here's that conversation. So joining us in the Zoom room, we've got Eric. Eric Nelson, how you
0: doing? Doing fantastic. Glad also, to be back.
1: Also, Adam Thatcher. Hey, Adam. Hi. And Cody D of Maximum D, distortion, that is. How are you, Cody?
5: I'm good. How is uh, everybody doing?
1: Doing well, doing well. So I think I want to start with you, Cody, because you live for Sundance, and it's been a tumultuous two years with the pandemic, with going into virtual screenings and big news they're doing in real life and online irl and url for 2022 does that make you happy
5: um well i, I wasn't quite sure how i was going to approach this year but what i decided to do with uh, with the press pass is do all online and and then i'm going to buy the pass that i usually get or I haven't looked to see what that all entails this year, but uh, if it's the past that I have gotten the past, I'm going to buy that one again and just do that one for Salt Lake. So,
1: Ah, so you're going to be busy between in real life and online.
5: I'll be busy, but I won't be trekking up and down the mountain every day. So it should cut down on that part of busy.
1: Okay. We're going to come back around and find out what some of your top picks are. Eric P. Nelson, you were infamous <laughs> for setting up your own screening room in what the garage
0: shed, shed the garden shed. The the garden shed. Shed. <laughs> shed. Yeah.
1: But you still maintained your snack schedule.
0: Oh yeah. The, the giant sack of gummy worms was always there. It, it's going to happen again this year. Um, I'm going to kind of do similar to Cody. Um, mm-hmm. Having the online and in real life option kind of makes it, you're not like on the move, on the move, on the move, on the move. You can catch the screening and then I can go home, put the kids to bed, hop over in the screening shed and watch (laughs) movies for the rest of the night. So you you
1: and Cody will be in the shed
0: watching the movies. (laughs) I got a new fireplace for the screening shed, so it's going to be... Sweet. 20 degrees instead of 10 degrees. I expect some live broadcasts,
1: the two of you. Autumn Thatcher, our red carpet correspondent for Radioactive and the Sundance Film Festival coming up January 20th to the 30th. You are back to actually, you know, be the pro on our team. So uh, what are you looking forward to? Have you been able to go through the schedule and kind of look at some of the, the meat of what's going to happen aside from the screenings?
6: Um, I'm still checking out the schedule to find out what's going to happen as far as events. I'm really curious. I, I kind of want to do a hybrid approach, but I'm especially excited about getting back up there and trying to hit the red carpets. I'm hoping that they'll do, I'm hoping that they'll still have some of that. I'm curious to know what that's going to look like, if so. Um, and, you know, the panels and some of the just like experiencing Sundance and those those interviews really are, I feel better um, in person. And, and so there's just something about that component of it. So I'm hoping to catch some of that, but I'm waiting for those announcements to be to roll out. So I'm not quite sure yet what it's going to look like.
1: In looking at the lineup of what, I think there's 82 films, feature films all told, anything that's kind of on your wish list for grabbing a, a filmmaker or an actor? Yes.
6: um, There is Genius, a Kanye trilogy. And oh, my God. If Kanye West is there and if I could talk to him, what would I say? (laughs) What would I ask? No, seriously, what
1: would you ask and what would he (laughs) say?
6: I don't know. I mean, it's it's like dependent on what which which Kanye you have there. You know, he's just everywhere and all over the place but you know there's no denying that his music is
1: just he's
6: very talented it would be so cool to interview him I just again I I don't know what I would ask
1: (laughs) so let's talk music films I mean there's Kanye I hear there's a documentary on Sinead O'Connor that if she's in town I want to be there how about you Eric what are you looking at yeah
0: it's there's, yeah, the Sinead. There's also, I think it's in the midnight category. It's a, a music documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom. the yes. Pre-9-11 New York music scene, which mm-hmm. just looks...
6: Meet it, Me it in just, the Bathroom. It looks like
0: it's going to be really fun to watch, but then like, ooh, something's coming. Yeah. So I, I think that's going to be a very interesting, uh, interesting little film.
1: Well, for the old timers from KRCL... I mean, the bathroom sounds an awful lot like let's take a walk to the van. So I'm just, I'm just saying. But New York is it? Is that a documentary or a narrative feature film? What is it? Um,
0: I think it's a documentary. Okay, I'm not, gonna. It's not in the say, horror genre. Yeah, it's it's in the midnight category, I believe. Or maybe it was in the next. Mm. I don't know.
5: My notes are scrappy.
1: Hey, Cody D, how about you? Anything on your music radar?
5: Uh, so as well as the Sinead O'Connor and the Kanye West, the one I found is in the uh, world documentary uh, section is called Sirens. And uh, <clears throat> it's about, an well, the first and only all-woman um, thrash metal band in the Middle East, and they're out of Beirut, and uh, kind of follows their journey through political unrest and unraveling of Beirut, and uh, just their kind of independence and... Beacon of hope for what I'm guessing is young women or pretty much anybody, really. But I'm interested in that one.
1: I saw that list and I'm like, this has got to be on Cody D's radar. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I, I think a lot of these could end up in Music Meets Movies too,
0: Eric. When it returns, when it returns,
1: <laughs> when it comes out, when it comes out. So that band is Slave to Sirens, like you were saying, Cody, the Middle East's first all female metal band. I I have got to see that one, Cody D. What else is on your initial perusal of Sundance twenty
5: twenty two? Well, at first glance, um, in the U.S. Uh, dramatic um, category is eight ninety two, and that's about a, a guy who um, his disability check from Veteran Affairs is really late, and he's on the brink of homelessness, and is about to lose everything, and he he walks into a Wells Fargo and says I've got a bomb. And I I can't like I always think about well not always but I think about at times when you know things get real bad and how desperate you would get, you yeah. know, to to what you would, you know. And so that that one really interested me. Or I yeah.
0: Eric,
1: what's on your top top tier so far?
0: I uh, so far, number one, it's it's gonna be great we need to talk about Cosby. It's a Ooh. Bill Cosby documentary and the title sums it up. And it's I just in and of itself, I'm like, that's going to be great. Directed by W. Camu Bell. Um, ah, phenomenal Bell. Um, comedian, but also great um, host on CNN. So that's... United Shades of America. Yep. Yeah, it is. It, it's everything that's wrapped around like... Who Cosby was, who he is now, how he got set up to be who he was, and just it, it's going to be good. Uh, I'm I'm very excited for that one.
1: That's the comedy genre that we all know is your first love. Any other comedy things
0: in the the festival? Um, there's there's a couple funny ones. The other um, kind of it, it's in, it's another documentary, but it's uh, Lucy and Desi. Um, directed by amy polar um so also i'm not sure but is there some sort of lucille wall yeah there is anniversary because Something. i listened to the podcast <laughs> the movie's coming out and now there's a documentary i'm i i don't know what the an anniversary is but lucille ball is uh, she's hot
1: again right that was yeah. zany redhead Speaking yeah. of redheads, Autumn Thatcher. Actually, I can't tell if you're still got the red hair going on in our Zoom. Our camera's not oh, I that have, great. Oh, I have. pink. Pink. All right.
6: Yeah. For some reason, My I remember you as a red. Pink.
1: Yeah, I remember you as a redhead. When last we met in real life, how many years ago now? It's been a while. But uh, what's on your list?
6: Well, um, I was just going to say finding out that Amy Poehler directed Lucy and Desi, that's a red carpet. I'll take, I'll take a red carpet interview with Amy
0: Poehler for sure. I'll come, f- I'll come film it for you.
6: <laughs> okay, let's do it. We got to tag team that one. Um, so I'm interested in a film called uh, "I'm The Janes.
1: Yes, that's on my list too. Yeah. Tell us about it.
6: I thought that one might be on your list, Laura. Um, so it's in the features category, and it says that in the spring of se- 1972, um, police raided an apartment on the south side of Chicago where seven w- women were arrested and charged. And um, essentially, they had built an underground service for, we- for women seeking safe, affordable, illegal abortions, and they called themselves Jane. And um, I'm just, yeah, I think it's a very timely film and certainly interested in in seeing it.
1: There's also one in the drama section called Jane starring Elizabeth Banks and Sigourney Weaver. It's on the same topic and then happening in the spotlight section follows a college student in France in 1963 before abortion was legal there. And, um, I, you know, I'm a daughter of an OBGYN who remembers pre Roe v. Wade before I was born in in the 60s, working in D.C. General, and that's one of my questions, and I don't know, I'm not asking any of you to jump into this third rail that we're talking about here on abortion, but um, I don't think people remember. And maybe these documentaries and these dramatic films will will bring back what the situation was pre-Roe v. Wade. So I I love that about Sundance. Anybody else got a documentary that they're looking forward to like that, Shining a Light? on something that they feel needs to be talked about
5: downfall the case against Boeing, um, being an aviation nerd.
1: Um, yeah. What's this one about Cody
5: and a pilot. Um, you know, I think we all take it for granted just how safe air travel is. And, and I I'm assuming that this, this is going to be largely on the, on the 737 max that they were having all the problems with. So I'm really curious to, to, to watch this one and kind of see, what was going
1: on okay uh, there's one i want to bring up and i don't know if i want to watch this or i'm terrified of it so maybe you can give me some feedback panel tick tick boom TikTok, tock the world's most downloaded app uh, these days best known for people showing off their dance moves so why is it the target of controversy so the same person who did um code of bias In Sundance 2020, director Shalini Kantaya, I'm not doing justice to that name, talks to Gen Z natives, journalists, and experts to find the personal stories of this cultural phenomenon because I can't handle TikTok. Anybody else want to weigh in? I'm with you. (laughs) Kids today! Get off my lawn! Everything you said.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it could be interesting having no background in it, but... Yeah, I it'll be I'm sure it'll be good. Go ahead, Cody.
5: The thing I find interesting about TikTok, I'm not on it, but I've talked to various people like my coworkers who use it to learn how to trade stocks or learn how to do this or learn how to do that. And so it it appears as though there is a useful tool element to it, but I i just haven't I've you know I'm I'm so inundated with what I'm on already that yeah. I just can't imagine adding another thing. So I haven't got mm-hmm. on it, but I've heard it's a really good resource for various things. So
1: yeah, and I hear realtors are selling homes and making lots of money using TikTok, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how, since there are no houses available. <laughs> but yeah. a- again, commodification of social media, where everybody's selling something, and so I- I- I'm going to go see it, but I might have to like take some anti-nausea medication. <laughs> I am. You know, I'm I'm, tr- I'm slowly just fully in that seat. Of, Get off my lawn, kids. So you need to sign up for
0: TikTok and uh, start making dance moves. Start making videos through the film and document yourself through uh, the film.
1: Nobody wants to see this <laughs> dancing on TikTok. So the thing I love about Sundance is it starts conversations, good, bad, indifferent and so I'm really looking forward to exploring all of that with y'all. So Sundance is coming up the 20th through the 30th of January, but tickets on sale to Sundance Institute members on Wednesday and the public starting Friday. We'll, we'll be using some of the tickets we get to... Invite you all out there to a screening with us, so stay tuned for all of that. Okay, one last pick I'm going to lead, and this one really caught my attention. It's called Duel. And Karen Gillan from Guardians of the Galaxy plays a woman who, after getting a terminal diagnosis, commissions a clone of herself to ease her friends and family's loss. But when she recovers, her efforts to decommission her clone lead to a court-ordered duel to the death. So... I am so in for this movie. It gets into weird sci-fi and also the conversation around AI and clones. And I I think this is going to be a really good one. Anybody got some thoughts on this one? Is it on your list, Eric?
0: That was on my short list. It just, I mean, it just sounds like a fun, a fun film to watch. A fun film. A duel to the
1: death with a clone.
0: Is it? Is it going to be funny? Is it going to be yeah serious? I don't know. Is it going to be a horror? Like I feel like it, it's going to kind of hit on all of that stuff with, with a plot line like that.
1: Written and directed by Riley Stearns of The Art of Self-Defense. And it also says comedy drama also stars Aaron Paul and Beulah Koali. I'm not sure I'm saying that last name right. All right, Eric, what's, on, what's one more pick from you?
0: Um, I got one more um, go figure from the Midnight Selection called Speak No Evil, and it's kind of in that, that same vein, kind of horror comedy. Uh, two families meet up on a vacation, become friends. A year later, one of the families invites the other family out to their cabin in the woods, more or less.
1: Oh, you cabin in the woods. Don't go. Don't go and there. Then,
5: Don't do it.
0: And then it gets weird. Um, but, but the, the tag that caught me was caught in a web of their own politeness. Ah, so family that just keeps saying, yes, 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 yes. And then all of a sudden what's going on here. <laughs> so I'm very curious to figure out what's going on there. Autumn Thatcher. So
6: I think I want to check out this film called good luck to you, Leo Grande. And it's described as a uh, Nancy Stokes played by Emma Thompson doesn't know good sex but whatever it may be Nancy a retired school teacher is pretty sure she has never had it she is determined to finally do something about that.
1: <laughs> oh Emma Thompson so we're talking yeah. you know Shakespearean actress from Cruella the evil mother that because for a second I thought you said Emma Thomas. I'm like wait she's not old enough to be okay right I got it straight now in my head.
6: <laughs> that sounds good it sounds- be a fun lighthearted film that you know i tend to get into the uh it's i'm, I'm either doing the music films or ones that are pretty heavy um topic wise and so i think this one might be fun to just kind of keep in my back pocket if i need a refresher you know just something light i
1: feel like that this could be the one and cody d wrap it up for us what do you got what's uh one more pick on your list
5: um i'd like to see alice and um story kind of intrigues me. Um, it's about a, an enslaved uh, plantation worker, and she somehow escapes through the woods and just stumbles on a freeway, and it turns out it's 1973.
1: Ooh, time so, travel on top of all that.
5: So I, I'm really fascinated by this story.
1: Yeah, there's a lot in the horror genre coming across um, with issues related to racism and social justice. Uh, that's going to be big, I understand, reading the Sean Means breakdown of the Sundance Film Festival in the Salt Lake Tribune. I'll put that uh, analysis in the show notes. But, Eric, we're going to do Sundance in 60 to keep people up to speed on screenings and fun stuff?
0: You betcha. Yeah, it's it's what to see. There's a lot of stuff happening locally, local screenings. Um Discounts for locals, um, local lounges. um, All the theaters in Salt Lake that have been functional in the past are are up and running this year. Um, So, yeah, stay tuned. Lots of stuff going on in town.
1: And, of course, we haven't even touched music. We're waiting for all of those lounge acts, so to speak, (laughs) to get posted, folks. But uh, check our social media and our website. We'll have our Sundance page up and running as the festival draws closer. And of course, you can always check krcl.org for your link to Sundance Action. Cody, Eric, Autumn, thank you so much. We'll be bringing all this into Radioactive, thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank
1: you. The Radioactive Sundance Film Festival 2022 coverage team. Thank you so much to Autumn Thatcher, Cody D from Maximum Distortion, Eric Nelson from KRCL for giving us all that preview of the Sundance Film Festival. Tickets go on sale on Friday. I'm Laura Jones. Questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, just email them to radioactive at krcl.org. My thanks to everyone on the show tonight and you for plugging into your community with Radioactive. Thanks for listening and have a great night.